Hey there, I'm Caroline Craighead. Welcome to Brass Taxes. It's the show where we talk to creative people about work and money, how we think about it, how it all feels. Brass Taxes is not only the name of this podcast, but it's also the tax prep company that's behind it. If you need to do your taxes, head over to brasstaxes.com. And if you end up scheduling an appointment with us, use code POD25 to get $25 off if it's your first time working with us. We're talking to a lot of entertainers and performers on the show. And even if you're far away from Hollywood, you know that those careers often go hand in hand with working in the service industry. So today we're gonna hear from two different artists, both good friends of mine, one who worked in various roles at bars and restaurants to support herself while she got her start in comedy, and another who went from playing music in and around Cincinnati to owning and operating a venue there. Obviously, the industry that was once as dependable as doing taxes for a living has been upended by the pandemic, and we'll hear from a bar owner's perspective what it's been like to stay open over the past year. First, though, I want to introduce you to Brooke Van Poplin. She's a comedian, actor, writer, podcaster, and at one time, my roommate. Among her TV appearances, she's been on Wyatt Cenac's Night Train, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, At Midnight, Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, and for its several-year run, she hosted the show Hack My Life on True TV. She has a musical EP called The Comfort Zone, co-written and performed with Julian Villard, and she now hosts, along with Andrea Wallace, Sidework Podcast, which takes on the service industry with server stories and hilarious takes about what's going on in the food and beverage world. It's a lot of fun. You should check it out. All right, with that, here is my chat with Brooke Van Poplin. I'm excited to talk to you because, first of all, we've talked, and uh, and I'm excited that you are willing to share that like we have both been through financial ringers in terms of coming yeah. to like having a come to Jesus of addressing our own finances, feeling out of control with it, and coming back to it. And so, uh, you know, there's there's that that I want to get into, but also just. Uh, you know, you are someone and I am someone and so many of our, our clients at, da- at Brass Taxes and listeners of this podcast are people who do not make their money from a single source. <laughs> right. Uh, which is something that I think more and more of us are coming around to recognizing that that's the norm, but it is increasingly the norm and it is very different from what the norm used to be. Uh, you know, it used to be, I think, kind of weird if you moonlight and, you know, do something else that's not your your day job and uh, if you expect to be making money from something that's not your main income source uh, right. that, that fell outside of the norm. But now I don't really know anyone who only has <laughs> one way that they I, make money. Well, right. And we're saying, like, it's our parents and their generation. Uh-huh. It, it's, you know, anything that I think started seeping into Gen X uh, all the way on down, we are gig workers a lot of the times. That's right. Yeah. 1099, <laughs> baby. So what are some of the ways, I mean, you are a multi-hyphenate in many ways. You're a podcaster. You are uh, a writer, performer. You're a comedian, a television yep. personality. You've done a lot of different things. And you also have a, a background in the service industry. And that is uh, your podcast, Side Work, is yeah. uh is about the service industry and connected with the people who are 
in the trenches. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> and working as 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 servers at restaurants and bars, bartenders, etc. Tipped uh, tipped employees and and yeah, and not that I need to go into insane detail about this, but beyond. Like when speaking to the servers beyond any year being sort of shaky and shady because of the nature of the industry itself. And if you've got a bad boss or someone who's cooking the books only pays people in cash, like Mm. there are so many ways um, that servers are affected, which we can get into. But this year forced out of their job to collect, you know, unemployment that many of them couldn't even access or losing hours completely, maybe some of them getting the stimulus, some of them not. So I just can't even imagine what their finances look in a year and a pandemic like 2020 and beyond has been. So we'll we'll certainly touch on that. Yeah. But. Can you tell us, yeah, like take a, a – going back to your days in the service industry uh, yes. or even like beginning as a stand-up. Well, um, right. <laughs> what uh, – what did your financial picture look like? Where did you make money and how did you spend money to try to make money? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Big questions. Uh, yeah, no, I know. So in general, no, nobody in my family had ever like lifted a plate or a tray or anything, nothing food service. Like this was something that I identified pretty quickly as a great way at a young age to have financial independence. Um, I did work some retail jobs briefly, which, God, when you're talking like mid to late 90s, your base pay was 525 minimum wage. Um, and I worked in record stores. So I would just use my employee discount and pay myself with a sick CD collection. So I was like <laughs> broke constantly. And, you know, I, and for me too, like long story short, I wasn't really into college. I would go for a semester, maybe flunk out, go get a real job for a bit, go back to college because I felt shameful about it, then get like a Mm. 4.0, you know, but then drop out again. And I just, I just was like, um, hiding from my landlord. I remember at one point because I was three months behind on rent and like my whole life was about running from this landlord. Oh, wow. Uh, And yeah, so I started working down the street from my house at a a Coney Island, which in the, you know, Detroit suburbs or my um, college town, that's what you call diners. You call them Coney Islands. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so you, you, uh, you know, this one was called Sparty's because I was a Spartan at MSU. Real, uh, real fucking original. Wait, did they have Um, like Coney's? Like, um, like I'm from Cincinnati. Okay. Yeah. So like. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Nice. Yep. So. You know, I would work breakfast. I would be there at 6 a.m. pouring people, like, their first cups of coffee, like, anywhere to, like, you know, long-haul truckers to college professors who'd be coming in for an omelet and a cup of diner coffee. And um, and to just walk out, like, on my good breakfast and lunch days with $100 cash in my pocket, $1 at a time, because the, the tabs were so low. Mm. I remember I walked after I'd been there I think two months or something like that, I walked up to my landlord and I was able to pay all back owed rent in that month in cash. And she was like, oh my God. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was one of the more empowering, you know, moments in my life. And so I was like, I'm sticking with this. And so I really did. And then obviously uh, kept moving up, you know, through echelons of fine dining to then 
you know, moving to Brooklyn where fine dining's not for me. It's too, especially because I did corporate fine dining. Mm. And it's really, it's the worst. It's I'm just not built that way. And you had to dress like a man, you know, head to toe, like button down shirt, a tie, a bistro apron down to the floor over your black pants. I mean, there's just like 15 pounds of uniform you have to hustle around in, but I did it. And, you know, to backyard bars in Brooklyn to then like ending with what I think we're all now more used to, which is the subtly expensive new American corner place that always has like a great chicken entree, a fish, a pasta. It has, you know, delicious apps, salads, fantastic mixology. And we could just dress however we wanted as long as we looked nice. Nice. And like, mwah, chef's kiss, that was me. And I made I made great money at that, at that job in Brooklyn. And how so. long did you do that? I mean, all in, I have I have slung food and coffee and alcohol. Um all in like 15 years. Nice. So, uh, but the, my last job was at James, which was a three, three full years. Uh, and I was there when, uh, I forget what happened when ta- like, like the IRS came down on restaurants big time because there was just so much, um, unreported income mm. and it was a huge, huge uproar that we would start to get paychecks every two weeks. Cause everyone was like, I'm so, like our credit card tips would come as paychecks. And then anything you got in cash, you had to claim something, but we always lied about the numbers. Mm-hmm. Even if you had a good cash night, which is rare. You'd be like, I made three bucks in cash, even if you made 40. Right, right. So we were still able to to get around it and be our slippery waitresses. But like, yeah, we were like in like 2012, suddenly restaurants were on the books and it, it got it got very scary, but it's it's worked out, you know. Yeah, I've I noticed that doing taxes because I've actually never worked in the service industry except mm-hmm. for in high school. I was a banquet server, which was very different. We didn't get tips. It was like you know, and I was bottom rung. But uh, I <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten them if anyone was tipped. But um, they, they made they made you just pour out the boiling water in the chafing dishes. That was pretty much it. Yeah, and like okay. collect all the half drunk you know uh, glasses ah. from around a a, a messy wedding reception. It was that kind of thing. My prom actually, my senior year was at the place where I worked. Uh, So I mostly hung out in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I would have too. Oh man. I, I love, I love knowing the staff when I've worked somewhere and knowing the staff, it's the coolest feeling. Yeah, They're all like, what's up BVP? You know, (laughs) totally. the chef set chef sends out like a little app off menu app, you know, it's a rat of the boss of this boss, this place. It's a pretty amazing power. Yeah. Uh, but I, it, I always wondered about tips and I knew, you know, from other friends in the service industry, it was, you know, like cash stuff. You can, no one's looking to a certain extent, but then doing taxes, I was seeing, um, you know, clients who worked at restaurants and they would, or bars and they had, uh, tips there's a box on your w-2 that says tips and so i always wondered like what goes in there is it all of it that goes in there and uh and i guess the answer is no that it's just the The credit card stuff yeah yeah the the credit cards began to be reported Mm -hmm. and it is really the norm a lot of people 
pay credit card. And that is why you will see other joints are like, oh, no, 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 fuck this. We are cash only, mm. which is a huge pain in the ass for customers. Right. But it's, I'm not to be rude, you know, like, and it all depends because Amer American Express has absorbent fees. So that's why you'll see restaurants refusing Amex mm -hmm. um, or Discover or other shit like that. I forget how it was for a bit, but um, or they would just be like, we're a cash only place because they never did anything right from the get go. And they'd be in so much trouble <laughs> if they started reporting stuff like because we're talking like Manhattan and Brooklyn. Yeah. Like so cash is king in Brooklyn because everyone cooks the books. Interesting. Uh, that's just the truth. I never knew why. Because I, I know the oh, arguments yeah. about, uh, you know, yeah, that credit card processing companies or credit cards themselves will have like fees for, you know, like two and a half percent per per charge or whatever right. is has to be paid to the processor. And so you don't have that when you have cash. Uh, and I remember being with a friend who was a few drinks in <laughs> arguing with a bartender about it being cash only where she was just like, but then I have to pay ATM fees to save you from paying credit card fees. And, and it was, you know, he was just like, listen, this is just how we do it. And that's, yeah, right. I remember that being a thing in Brooklyn where people were just like, this is how we do it. If you don't want to play along, then go, you know, eat and drink somewhere else. But exactly. that makes sense why. And, <laughs> and Right. And we've all gotten on board. We all know. We all remember now in the back of our head to either check if it's cash only. You know, yeah. there's this thing. I hate to use Yelp. I, I don't even get me started on Yelp. Mm. It is such an ev evil empire. But yeah. it does have information, you know, that'll say something like cash only. Right. Uh, or if you love the place and you remember cash only, you, you just you just prep in advance. Like we know yeah. that some of the old tiki bars here, you know, in Los Angeles, like we're going to Tiki Tees. Yeah. Get out $60 cash. Yeah. You know, because your drinks are super expensive, but they're delicious and you get bombed and you might want to buy a friend a Toro, you know, <laughs> or just something. Yeah, totally. But, uh, but yeah, and so it was a, it's a big deal when tax season's, certainly came around and I can say that there was a swath of time where I just didn't report anything and you're not on the books as earning anything because mm. your base pay as a server, which is still true in multiple states across the U.S., is $2.13 an hour. That's so insane. Um, which by the time they do process things, you get a check that says $0 non-negotiable and that's what's on the books. It, it's a really, so I just didn't report anything for years. And no one's coming to look for someone who like literally didn't earn anything, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but then that, that definitely changed. And probably with, yeah, I think with the more on, on the grid uh, <laughs> jobs, I had to get real about filing probably, yeah, in 2008 was like, the first time I really was like, oopsies, I better go back and do this. And yeah, was terrified to go into H&R Block. I thought that they were like going to dial 911 <laughs> and have the have the police come get me. Yeah, that's a real fear. I mean, if you don't, if you haven't done it before yourself, if you haven't, that's probably 2008 was probably the year that I first did my own taxes. And I remember crying on the phone to my dad. Like, yes. I am a smart person. Why don't I know how to do this? <laughs> No, it's so all hard? it's all a mystery. It's like unrolling Dead Sea Scrolls. You're like, I don't read Hebrew or whatever. You know, yeah. I don't even know what it's written in. But <laughs> you're just like, and if I put a one, because like, I definitely went through phase two 
where I took as many, um, what's that called? Like in your, in your W2, like the first, I would claim like oh, up ex- to eight allowances. Exemptions? Allowances. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Someone was like, yeah, that's what I do. And then it was like a firefighter slash bartender that I worked with who was like, that's what I fucking do. And that was like my tax guidance for a few years. I was like, I don't know. I think you just claim a lot. Um, no idea what I was doing. But the good news is I was a very, very poor person. So no one was really coming to look for me. Sure. Yeah. Just so our listeners know, too, the way that uh, that, that works when you're claiming allowances on a W-2, and they've changed it oh, now. Please tell just me. Last please year. tell me. I don't know what oh, okay, I was doing. You too. Uh, yeah. So so basically, you're filling out a W-4 when you're going to be on payroll with someone. And, okay. and what you're saying to the payroll processing company or to payroll is, when I go to file my taxes – Here's what's going on in my tax household. So when you put allowances, essentially, there's it's very confusing when you read it, too. But you're basically just filling out a form to say, like, uh, withhold taxes, knowing that I'm one person in my tax household. Therefore, I'm going to put one allowance. Or if you're someone who has, like, a husband and five kids, you're going to say, there's seven people in my tax household, so I'm going to put seven allowances. And what that does is it, because someone who has a tax household that has that many dependents pays less tax than someone who owes only themselves. So it's just telling them the rate to withhold taxes at on your pay to, on your <laughs> <laughs> paychecks. So like you can, if you put like eight, you know, there's eight people in my tax household, eight allowances I'm claiming on my W-4, then what they're going to do is not withhold as much tax because they think at the end of the year when you go file your taxes on your tax return, it's going to have you plus seven dependents and that your income from this one job is supposed to feed eight mouths. And that, that type of a household has a way lower tax rate than just one person earning money for themselves. So it's okay to have tax under withheld throughout the year. But then when you go to file your taxes, they'll be like, but you're still just one person. There aren't all of these other people who you claimed allowances for. So in reality, you should have had more tax withheld and therefore you owe it now. Um, Yes. Yeah. So I, and I think that's what I took away is like, do you want the money now and pay it later? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to file correctly? Mm -hmm. And then, but I'm also like, what the, and I think my attitude toward is like, give me my fucking money. And then I'm going to find a way to not pay you back. (laughs) Right, right. Which is how white collar criminals (laughs) make the world go round, you know? Yeah. And I'm like a a wait, you know, like a waiter apron wearing criminal. But, um, (laughs) you know, some years I'd get nailed. I swear to God, I went to Staten Island one year because my roommate recommended some insane person that was literally like a Better Call Saul. I love hearing about these jokester. <laughs> um, and I remember, I t- it, it was just stacks of paper everywhere, like a hoarder's episode. Oh, yeah. And I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like, first of all, I just took the Staten Island ferry <laughs> over here. Like that should have been like." I'm like looking at my roommate after this like 
how did you find it? Like my roommate was very housebound. Like she never left. And I was like, how did you find a man in Staten Island when you like stick to our four block radius and work only? So that was like so wild to me. But a year or maybe two years later, I was in a new relationship with, you know, my boyfriend at the time who was like very savvy, had made a really nice um, living for years at this point, and I had started to do better producing television. And he's like, you should see that our girl Becky. And like, I brought in the taxes from Staten Island guy, and like, she looked like, oh God, I might go f- go to jail for like even looking at these papers. Oh, wow. And she was <laughs> horrified. Oh, no. She's like, who is this? Who is she's like you? You cannot go back <laughs> ever again. And I was like, I don't know what he did. There's very much like there's you know the short term and the long term satisfaction where it's like okay, like in the short okay. term he might be like I'm gonna save you, and that's what people think that they're looking for sometimes is like I want someone right. who's gonna get me a bunch of money back or make it so I don't have to pay. And it's like well maybe they will, but then if something that was, you know, finessed in a way to make it look like that uh, when that's not the tax reality. Uh, if, right. if that was ever audited, then that's just a world of pain waiting for you, <laughs> you know, oh like my God. down the road. And yeah, Caroline, I just remembered that he said, on a scale of one to 10, from evasion to by the books, where you fall. And I was like, <laughs> uh... And I was kind of like six and a half. Like I didn't Amazing. know what to say. I really didn't know what to say. And so we question. did like <laughs> on a scale of tax evasion. Like he's like, are you scared of are you scared of the police? You know, so like are you scared of the IRS? And I'm like, I don't know. Should I be? Ugh. Yeah. Wow. That's such an interesting. Um, I have been audited. Oh, how did that go? Um, again, this is a little younger me. The first year I was 29 where I tried to walk away from waiting tables and make money just off comedy. Mm. Um, also the year that I have never been so devastatingly poor. Uh, so just to paint a picture how well that was going, but I had been told the person, uh, it's just all crazy. The person who had been paying me uh, was a friend. I was helping her run a show where she was kind of making surprising amounts of money doing it. And then at the last minute, she was like, because she was like, I'm just going to pay you off, like, uh, off you know, the books. On the s- yeah. Off the books. And then when she took a look, at how bad her taxes were going to be, she suddenly was like, you got to report and do something Mm. or whatever. And I was like, what? No, we're fine. And then she ended up, you know, doing everything by the book, reported me. I reported like, I mean, it was a meager amount of money, but still I I made like Mm $19,000 or something that year and um, didn't have anything withheld and was like, I think good and oh girl Mm. they came for they came for you girl and it's like they want you know they wanted like six thousand dollars of that of course which when you've been broke as a joke that is I mean I paid it all back on a payment plan you know but yeah it was just like and I probably had like two years of wages garnished or any return that may have come to me they took it I mean they'll they'll get they'll get they're gonna get their money they're like a pimp you know so and that's that's 
so painful to hear about too, because it's like, you know, if you had uh, proper tax advising, if like, if this right. was something that we all learned in school, you know, of like, hey, the way that you're going to make money is mostly going to be yeah. untaxed. Here's what to know about what's coming. I remember like my dad warning right. me like, you know, a third of that's going to go to taxes. And I was like, don't worry about it. I'll figure out a way to get around it. But it's like the only, I mean, the thing that's very legitimate though, is that, you know, at that time, you were spending money, you know, being a comedian, you know, and developing right. your skills and, and being out in, you know, uh, professionally, you were investing in your career right. as an entertainer. And so uh, those expenses, I'm guessing, probably weren't showing up on your tax return because no one tells you that you can No one do told that. me. <laughs> right. That I could have tallied up at that point. You know, it, it's like, it's very different now because, well, and it's different again, I because I know you've probably talked about 1099 and artists and freelancers all got completely screwed by the Re Republican tax bill, yeah. um, which I'm hoping will flip back around again um, with a new administration. But you could say uh, things like, I pay for Netflix so I can watch TV and study, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm a TV writer. Like, that's gone. Um, that stuff you can still do if you're getting paid as an independent contractor, but what's gone now is if you're getting paid as an employee. So for example, if you're hired as a TV writer and they okay. have you on payroll, you can no you longer can't. deduct those things. Also along See, with that, you can't deduct your agent and manager fees if you're on payroll right, or your union dues, is, which is huge. That is that in and of itself because right, it's like I, I went from being someone who, you know, at the worst end of my career, trying to live off comedy, made like $19,000 for a whole, you know, calendar year to, you know, the other end of it where after having a TV show for a couple of seasons, it's like I am an S Corp now. Mm. And I was able to 100% offset ridiculous amounts of money. My agent and manager got paid to do nothing for my career, by the way. So, except collect their percentage. Yeah, and that's why uh, if you land a big gig, they'll tell you to set up an S-corp or someone will say like, hey, set up a loan out. And that's the term like within the entertainment industry that we call like a, a corporation that is right. separate from you tax-wise. So it's like, it's mm -hmm. a business. And a lot of places where they're hiring people to be on TV or to write for TV or whatever, uh, they'll only pay either a loan out company or mm -hmm. you as an employee. They will not, right. for labor department reasons and also ta their own tax reasons, a lot of them will not pay you as an independent contractor. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's where you get screwed now by the new <laughs> yes. Republican rules, where if you are, if you make the choice of not becoming a loan out, which is expensive to set up, expensive to maintain, it's very expensive. and also it is. yeah, is a whole other. It's like you doing taxes then for yourself and for this other entity. Um, so if you don't yeah. choose that, and instead you choose, I'm going to be an employee, uh, then you can no longer write off those expenses that you can if you're a company. So you're a company if you're a if you're incorporated, and you're a company if you're an independent contractor. Even if you haven't set up a company as an independent contractor, you can still write off expenses mm. like you're a company. Mm. But when just, that's not an don't option. don't want to be yeah, right, an employee. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, it's all like I feel like I've been on every end of it at this point. You know, the show ended and like my worst nightmare happened 
of of just literally uh, blowing through everything I had earned and saved, you know, um, to the point where I was like, I got to sell my house. And I don't mind being open about that. That's not something I would ask you to cut out because it's realistic. Mm -hmm. You know, there weren't jobs that were super easy to get. And I'm not like, I was never a millionaire or anything like that where you're like, I'm going to be fine for a bit. Like it was a really good amount of money, but you can't live in LA and pay a mortgage for three years in a row with, with having a year with like really shit income. And so, you know, my situation is just different in that, um, it broke my heart. It kicked my ego. You were with me. I I came in to talk to you in the bedroom. I started crying. I was like, I have to sell my house. I don't know how, I don't know how to make ends meet. This is, it's, I'm, I'm going to go broke if I don't, you know? And then when I got specs of how much I was going to earn and that it was a fucking smart investment all those years ago, I got excited to sell it. I was like, hell yeah, (laughs) give me that money. So my, yeah, my quarantine has been a little different. I'm like the only person I know in my friend group who like sold a house, closed and made a, you know, made a nice chunk of money off of a smart investment I made when things were good. So, And closed it like the day that the world shut down too. (laughs) The day the world shut down. Nail biting. Like if I had, if the deal had fallen through, I was like, oh man, we're talking foreclosure because there would have still been no job. Like all this, like, and like, so it all worked out really beautifully. And I'll tell you what, when that money comes your way, the shame about selling your house, it's gone. You're like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> what a crazy year for all of us to confront our own egos about where we're at and what we're doing. Are you fucking kidding yeah. me? I know. I was like, I, I think I wrote a joke like money comes and money goes, but you can always hate yourself. Um, anyways. <laughs> you sure can. <laughs> oh, man. Hating yourself is forever. It's evergreen. Um, <laughs> the virus can't take mm-hmm. that away from us. No. Um, tell us about the podcast. Um, you were, have been doing, you just celebrated 100 episodes. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And uh, it's so great. So relatable. So so fun to like hear the, the stories that are submitted to from all of your listeners, the people who are working in the service industry. And especially during the pandemic, it must be really interesting to hear from people about how they're pivoting, how they're trying to stay above water, how they're... Uh, confronting the safety issues of being asked to work and then not work and being exposed and not. Uh, yeah. What are some of the things that, that you've encountered just in these past few months through through the podcast? Um, and I promise I will make it uh, under the topic of, of money where it's related. But <laughs> it just wherever. a few. Go- <laughs> but I know. But just a few gossipy things like right off the bat, um, which I think we can all say the pandemic in general has exaggerated like who we are as humans. If you were already like an anxiety ridden human, Mm. you're probably a lot more anxious and cautious than ever before and torturing yourself with the, you know, and if you're dumbass, you're out there partying in a bar without a mask on. If you were a mean, rude, terrible customer, guess what? You're even more so now. So you would not believe that there's like no gray area with customers right now. It's either people who are like, thank you so much. This is a 30% tip and then some, we love you. Oh my God, take your time. 
And then there is the entitlement that walks in, now turn up to an 11, um, and screaming at servers for rules that they did not personally implement, that they are, you know, it's like, think about these servers working on outdoor patios in a heat wave in California with their work uniform, plus a mask, a face shield and gloves on, running back and forth, bringing you stuff. And people were, were still doing crap, like pushing a bunch of tables together when they're like, you're gonna shut us down. And they're like, well, wait, do, 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 do. And then like no mask on and blowing COVID in their face. And, and like, it, it's the stuff we've heard is heartbreaking. Um, not surprising, unfortunately, but then thank God the yin to the yang is that um, there are just some total pandemic heroes who are really, you know, going above and beyond for staffs and, and whatever. But it's just, you know, because I, for me personally, I'm like, I had just re-entered the service industry workforce. I am not a valued employee at anyone's restaurant. I haven't put in the time, you know, the time and the effort here in California. Mm. So that was just a hilarious flash in the pan. And I'm like, no one's hiring. So this is like, this is done for me. So there was no going back into it personally. Mm. Um, also for my safety reasons, no, no thanks. Um, not doing that. You get treated badly enough um, as a server in certain situations without risking your fucking life uh, right. every day. And there's there's mass it's called masculine harassment. Oh where wow. yeah, men, creepy dudes, guess what? They've always been a problem in bars and restaurants. But <laughs> now imagine. they're saying stuff to female servers like, take your mask off so I can decide how much to tip you. Shut up. Oh, I'm dead serious. The one fair wage has like they've pushed back, like they joined with like Jane Fonda and all these people to do this huge conference and like make a lot of awareness um, about mask harassment and yeah, the sexual harassment that's going on with, it's just a new level of degrading. Oh, what's one fair wage? I haven't yeah. heard of that. One fair wage is basically a really fantastic organization that believes we need to get servers unionized and to get every single server up to at least $15 an hour and earn tips on top of that as well. Uh, we learned in the course of doing our podcast that all of Nevada, anyone in the service sector, including hotels, they've been unionized for like 14 years. Whoa. So they get paid sick leave. They have access to higher training. They obviously, um, can move like like they have stock options it's total protection it's amazing and it took like people striking for four years outside of a hotel to gain that and it's so, their union is so powerful and so awesome that you don't even have to be part of the union in Nevada to get all the rights wow yeah it's cool you should look into it yeah, but definitely. that's like one fair wage is like pushing for the world of restaurants to go that way. And so everyone needs to know, cause of course there's going to be backlash from owners and customers. Cause you're going to have to reflect, um, to pay everyone well, that food costs are going to have to go up. Yeah. They've been too cheap for too long. Mm -hmm. It's just the reality of it. You know, even at some places that are expensive or whatever, um, it, yeah, so it's it's a really we we get we get deep into it, you know. And I, I would like to be at the forefront of educating and, and teaching 
servers when the time comes, which could be actually pretty soon, that it's good. Like, step into this certainty yeah, and come with us, you know? It is like, so. I mean, I feel... Since the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like I had a sense of like, oh, this is going to be bad for people who are not empowered in their jobs. <laughs> and and, yeah. and that is certainly, especially like like you talk about people being on the front lines of interacting with the people who, you know, mm-hmm. uh, don't want to wear masks or want to be able to sit together, want to be able to, are entitled enough, first of all, to be going out to restaurants and sitting around knowing that there's a pandemic happening. But, you know, it's it's putting the people at the the front of the line or just like who are at the, the very end of the the power we're, structure right, we're, are bearing we're the at the end of the power structure yeah exactly and 16 million people do this for a living in america we are not a small force that's huge yeah yeah so that's why i'm also like if we could unify and get on the same page like we can also because i know like and i think the thing too is servers and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna blanket it but they are very disenfranchised people who A, don't like to pay taxes and B, historically don't vote. So that's been a big, it's been a big objective of our podcast to get these really young, fresh ears. But it's because they just feel so off the grid. They just make tips. They don't feel like they matter. You are treated as expendable. You know, the pandemics made it even more glaringly obvious and you know so it's it's been a whole thing to get them to realize uh that someone like AOC is someone that they can be yeah you know because we also have so many it's it's just a part of every kitchen and and um part of life that your staff the people that you love um so many of them are undocumented uh back of house major major problems so it would be great to bring them into the light get them able to receive you know, a stimulus, unemployment. Worker the, protections. These families, yeah. ha- yes, they haven't gotten anything this entire quarantine. So it's rough. Yeah, we we sort of deserve an award for restaurant journalism. <laughs> um, you know, but I guess Eater.com are real journalists and we're just a podcast, but you know. podcast is Sidework, hosted by Brooke Van Poplin with Andrea Wallace, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Go check it out, and while you're at it, why not make sure that you're subscribed to Brass Taxes? And hey, why not leave us a rating and a review? Why not share it with your friends? Okay, so masculine harassment was new to me, I gotta say. That caught me by surprise. And as Brooke said, though, the pandemic's really bringing out humanity's True colors. One person, though, who I know uh, in the service industry who's been weathering it well by keeping not only one but two establishments open throughout all of the changes, one in Kentucky and one in Ohio, so that's two different states' mandates that he needs to follow, is my good friend, Stuart McKenzie. Stuart has been the frontman of Cincinnati-based bands like Lions Rampant and Dap Girls. Uh, And six years ago, he and his business partner took over a Cincinnati music venue slash bar slash restaurant and turned it into Northside Yacht Club. After my conversation with Brooke, I checked in with Stuart to find out what it's been like in the bar and restaurant world from a business owner's perspective. So when we were allowed to open... um Everyone was like, oh, we're so excited. We waited, I, I don't know if it was three weeks or a month, because we're like, dude, every hillbilly 
that's been cooped up in their apartment for three months. There's going to be like a nice table of like, you know, high school friends that are ladies that are like having like, you know, dinner together. And some guy that has been locked in his apartment is going to be, hey, lady, you know, hasn't been to a bar, hasn't been a lot of drink. It's going to be like booze, you know, and then I have to walk up and be like, stop bothering these people. It's like, oh, I'm just talking to them. Like you have to have, you know, be in your seat. You're going to, oh, is it illegal in America to talk to a table of ladies? I'm like, yes. <laughs> they don't know you. They don't want to catch COVID from you trying to hit. They don't want to hit, be hit on either, you know. So but Yeah, now you're like unwanted and dangerous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it means that uh, situation before was annoying. Now it's like, yeah, people are like. Potentially lethal. <laughs> yeah, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> uh, so, and yeah, and if you're not already not taking it seriously to begin with, then you're like, why can't I? And you feel isolated and you've been alone and then now you think that you can go to a bar it's going to be normal it's not i mean you must even be thinking at at certain points like does it make sense for us to be open at all like you know if you have to reduce capacity and so much more of your like business goes to delivery or takeout or whatever like how do you even account for those in decision making about like how many people you can afford to have on staff and how many you know like how long you can afford to be open and which days and you know like yeah. what uh, that just feels like it's a lot to to keep your finger on the pulse of when things are change have been changing so rapidly over the past year so i think yeah the the i guess the answer is a couple different the first thing we realized was like okay well let's stop trying to like make money like that's just, like don't like you know we're gonna try and <laughs> stay open, but we're uh, not going to try and be pro- like stressed out about being profitable. Like just take that out of the thing. So for us, so Yacht Club's really big. It has, you know, a two-story patio. It has a, a venue room where you can fit like, you know, essentially like I think a max capacity is like 250. So, and so for us, I, I was like, you know, I opened this other bar, Jerry's, that has a max capacity of like 40 people. And I was like, I'm so tired of this giant big bar. I want to open a small, tiny, cozy one. So for Jerry's, that's kind of sucked because what normally was cool, like a small, cozy bar is now like a super spreader zone. Um, so luckily this is like a certain spreader. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not going to be a lot of people, but you're all going to get yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was like, I was like, oh, cool. Uh, so we put a, made a patio. They city of Newport was cool and let us put like an outdoor patio that was like parking spaces. So that was how we, um, but for Yacht Club, um, you know, first we just opened for three days only for carry out. And so it's like, okay, we're going to spend this much food. We have to sell this much food and we're just going to bring our chef back. And me and, you know, John, my other business partner, and like some other people, you know, like we'll just bring back tiny, tiny staff to see and see if people are even getting to go food and how that works. Then we had to set up online ordering, which we'd never had because, because people were like calling on on the phone, which was, you know normally wasn't a big deal. And then we, we had to like you know it's a landline, so like literally the first day we came back on, the someone had it was a hand a handheld headset, so someone didn't like leave it on the charger, so the phone was dead. Now it takes a half an hour for it to charge. So then I'm driving around in 2020 trying to find what the millennials whatever call a house phone like and no one sells one like really yeah target was like we have cell phones like we don't know they i couldn't find, i had to go to an ace hardware and it was like covered in <laughs> dust and like the back so, so just to get like a bungee cord phone so i could take calls and then people are getting mad because 
you know, like they're getting a busy signal. Cause it was, so then I had to get like a little burner phone that you could, so you could have two different phones people are calling in. And then, you know, uh, so then, <laughs> yeah. So, then each, so essentially, you know, I think we had been open for maybe six years and five or six years. And we had just, we had like karaoke on Sundays. We had a pop-up ramen night on Mondays. We had live music on Friday and Saturday. We had brunch on Sunday. We had half price wing Wednesday, trivia Tuesday. So everything was good. We had a super solid staff. And then like, then the pandemic hit, it's like, okay, now we're a carry out business and we, you know, operate by, oh, also our phone then just stopped working because we were using Cincinnati Bell, tree branch phone or something. And they're just like, it was, you couldn't get through. And I was like, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like I, uh, so then I had to figure out, yeah. So then I had become like a webmaster and figure out how to like, you know, upload onto this online ordering system and then hire a new processor and all this stuff. So you're like working four times as much to make a fourth of the money because, you know, when you're a bar or a restaurant, the majority of them, you know, a burger might cost eight to $12 or whatever, or even $15, but that's about break even when you consider your cooks, your staff, all the refrigeration, electricity, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you really make money off the liquor because the liquor doesn't go bad and the markup's much higher. For some reason, people will flip out about a burger being really expensive, but they don't care, you know, if the cocktail is expensive. Interesting. Um, which is good because that's really the, I mean, the margins are a restaurant are already really, really, really low. Um, but yeah, each time it felt like we were completely reinventing the, so then we were, got really good at just being a takeout business. Um, and then, then they allowed like patio dining and then, you know, so then I had to rehire some staff and I had to figure out who, who's, who's coming back. And I guess the long, the short answer is the reason I didn't close when we were allowed to reopen was just, I like have a really good staff and I know like if I close down, they go get another job. And I, so I'm just trying to keep everybody that I have, um, you know, employed so they don't go off and get jobs somewhere else. <laughs> I have been very impressed by, I mean, you were doing this even before the pandemic, but like your uh, sense for promotions and creating buzz and like getting people interested and getting people excited about like your offerings and in the door and, you know, like going for what you want them to, to come yeah. in and go for it has been like impressive where it's like, I feel like if I did that kind of stuff, it would look desperate. <laughs> like I'm just like, <laughs> oh, it's definitely please desperate. come in or whatever. Yeah. But just like it's so, I don't know, like the, the names you come up with for the cocktails, like the spirit of everything just feels like it's like all a big, uh, you know, joke party like thing yeah. that everybody wants to participate in and can like have fun with online and spin into, you know, riffing on it. It definitely. Okay. So we we have, you know, we've been doing specials and they've been like really good for um, like us mentally, uh, well, I, I, and bad for us mentally, but like basically, <laughs> you know, when we reopened, we just opened and sold wings the first time. Cause we didn't know, you know, our menu had like uh, a short rib grilled cheese. We had a uh, pulled pork sandwich. We had salads, we had chicken, you know, we had chicken wings. We had a bunch of different things to prepare. And so we're like, all right, well, let's see, like we're known for our smoked wings. Let's just sell wings. So and then you know, it would be like, people are tired of having wings. We had vegetarian wings as well. So then we were like, okay, we added the burgers. Then the, bur the burger was doing well. And then we were like, well, we can't really, you know, we'll add back like maybe a salad, but we can't like run with this giant menu that because it's, 
you know, like just, we're just not getting the business that we used to. So we were like, let's do a really, let's do a special that we're all excited about a week special, we'll launch it on Friday and then um, run it for the week and then do something new the next time. So that was good for us just to keep our creative juices going. Cause we're, you know, like most of us are musicians, so we can't play out anymore um, and, or just creative people in general. So it was fun to, um, or, you know, like, so when we did like Nihilist Arby's. Um, yeah, tell us about Nihilist Arby's. <laughs> so like John is really good friends with um, the guy who runs the Nihilist Arby's account. And he's an awesome musician who um, has played Yacht Club before in one of his bands. Um, and so, and like we were talking about a special, which is like we should do a roast beef special. And then we're like, oh, and I was like, I want to do like a sous vide roast beef where we like cook it for 24 hours at a really low temperature and... So then we're like, oh, we should do it at Nihilus Arby's. And then John got a hold of him and he was all for it. So then we just, you know, and then that was like, you know, the busiest we've ever been. Um, like, what, wait, what is the Nihilus Arby's account? Like Nihilus Arby's is like, uh, it's a, it's a Twitter handle. I thought you guys invented it. I didn't know it like came from an actual account. No, he's like, it's like a famous account. It's Brendan Kelly. Brendan was like really he like he has a bunch of followers from the Nihilist Arby's account. So and we we're like so we're gonna become you know we were a pretty funny write up uh, with them uh, you know like where we were becoming a Nihilist Arby's and I think at the time of the pandemic everyone felt really Nihilist. Um, <laughs> so like so you get a burger and fries and on the top it said uh, what's humanity but a random experiment in cruelty? What's life but a parade to the grave? What's Arby's snack and save menu but great value? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so it's like a twelve dollar roast beef sandwich, and then one of them, yeah, kill, <laughs> killed a man, left your family, plummeted into a shameful addiction spiral. None of it matters to Arby's. Please enjoy Arby's. <laughs> um, and so like, oh, we, it's bleak. Yeah, so they had, and it, it said like Arby's nothing, and so we like we had a um a, like we'll turn the whole restaurant into a pop up where like we just had nihilist Arby's signs everywhere and everything was brand yeah um i think my the one that i think is the best is uh drain the blood cure and slice the flesh season and fry the potatoes feed them the sugar water be born toil die arby's we sell food <laughs> oh man yeah, yeah so so i mean the, and the roast beef sandwich was really good and then we tried to make like curly fries and we we're just like, so it's like, you know, the best roast beef we can make and the finest uh, box of curly fries we can buy from the restaurant <laughs> depot. Cause it's just like, it's just, it, it, you can't really make those. It, it needs to be made in a factory somewhere. That was Stuart McKenzie. And this has been Brass Taxes. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our guests, Stuart McKenzie and Brooke Van Poplin. I am Caroline Craighead, and I hope that you will join us next week when we talk to another former roommate of mine, actually, the poker legend, Phil Galfond. Till then, visit BrassTaxes.com for all of your tax prep needs. Use code POD25 for a discount if it's your first time working with us. And above all, take good care of yourself. Peace. Peace.